Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Randy Bishop, an entrepreneur with experience founding, running, and scaling high-growth consumer and B2B businesses. He's currently the president and co-founder of ContractSafe. We first met in 2010 at Varango Solar, where he was the CEO. I absolutely loved my experience working at Varango, largely due to the people-first culture that he and co-founder Ken Button built where the core values weren't just words on the wall, but they were felt and embraced throughout the organization. On this episode, we discuss how his experience living abroad as a child and young adult played a role in shaping the person he's become. We learn how working at Intuit early in his career provided mentorship and leadership role models that would influence how he would ultimately run his own companies. Randy shares how trust has been a central theme in his life and has proven to be a key component to his success both personally and professionally. Randy also talks about his experience being part of the Young Presidents organization and how strategic advisors have played a critical role in helping him as an entrepreneur. He also shares why most businesses take longer than expected to achieve success and reveals some of the challenges he's had to overcome building businesses in difficult conditions. If you're a leader or entrepreneur, you're sure to find value in learning from Randy and his experiences. So please enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Right. Well, I'm so excited to have in Insight Studios, Randy Bishop. Randy and I met when I worked at Varengo, and he was the CEO and co-founder of Varengo. That was my first job in the solar industry. So I just first and foremost want to say thank you for that opportunity that really led to a 10-year career in the renewable space. I'm so grateful. And it was a wave that was cresting that I paddled out, that I caught, and that I was fortunate enough to ride for as long as I did. And Randy, I just want to say thank you for that opportunity. It's an honor to be here, Billy. It's always a thrill to talk to you, see you after a long time. So thanks for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome to Insight Out. We're going to cover a lot of topics ranging from how you think about culture and business and some of your experiences out of college. I'm super intrigued. We just had an opportunity to connect over a bowl of ramen, which there's nothing that's going to get me more juiced and excited and ready to have a conversation than a good meal, especially when that meal involves a delicious bowl of ramen. But before we get to that, let's start with your story. For those that don't know you, give me your background, your story, and tell us a little bit about Randy Bishop. Sure. So... Grew up here in L.A., third generation, went overseas early, as we were talking about, lived in Paris for three years as a kid, went back as as an exchange student in Belgium, really fascinated with the world outside of the U.S. at that age. I went to college, studied Japanese, lived in Japan for a couple years, looked like the Japanese were going to take over the world, wanted to be a part of that. Things changed. Came back, was focused on finance, but really decided that I wanted to roll my sleeves up and build stuff myself as opposed to invest in people building stuff. And so went into increasing operational roles, which culminated with buying a company that we built into Varengo, running that for seven years, growing that to over a hundred million in revenue, 
15,000 plus installs after seven years, left there, and have recently started another startup called ContractSafe that's helping people manage their contracts online. Nothing to do with renewables, but back to my software background, I used to work it into it as well. So that was a, a little step along the way. We can talk about that as well if you'd like. I would love to. Well, I love your story. I especially love that you had the, I don't know if it's foresight or if it was luck or what have you, but you made a point to have some world experience early on in your life. I guess we can start there. I, I think there's probably a lot of insights to be gained just from the perspective of being exposed to other cultures, other ways of life, the perspective that you get by seeing how life exists outside of the bubble that we call the United States of America. It's shocking to know how many people don't have passports in this country. And it's it's actually kind of discouraging and disappointing to think that so many people haven't had the opportunity to explore and see other parts of the world. You're an exception to that. Would love it if you could share some of the insights that you gained from your experience and maybe talk a little bit more about where you've been and what that helped in terms of your own life trajectory and your own journey. Sure. So I was fortunate in that my parents were very interested in life overseas. My dad had lived in Italy for a year and a half. My mom had been an English teacher on a French army base or a U.S. army base in France. And then we moved when I was six to live in Paris for three years, spent some time there, wanted to go back and experience that more as a young adult. And so I took a year off before college and was an exchange student. And this was with the full support of my parents. They were very nice and supportive. And I was into college. So it was a free year to live overseas and really try and make the most of that experience. And it was fantastic. Lived with a family, redid my senior year of high school, but in French. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, which was hard, but also really fun. And it was fascinating. It was just so neat to learn about the world outside of the US and, and just see, on the one hand, how many things we have in common across cultures and how connected people are no matter where you go to see how kind people are. I mean, so many people went out of their way to make sure I had an amazing experience and to show me things or have me over or just learn about where I was from and learn more about me. And to also see the US from a different perspective because you know we're in a bubble here, we're in a lot of bubbles right now. And overseas, people have a very different view of what's going on here and how that matters in the world and what is important in the world. And so seeing that from a different perspective was really fascinating as well. And I think it's a great experience. I think it really broadens people's minds, connects people. I think everyone should do it if, if they have the chance. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I also look back on my own experience traveling as eye-opening and something that I really can't imagine had that not happened, what my life would look like now. I think it was one of the most important parts of my growing as a human being when I got to see how other people across this amazing planet live. And to your point, it's funny how, you know, the human condition, we're more and more alike than we are different. And yes, there's cultural differences, but as equally as important as knowing what those differences are, it's also really cool. And I'd say eye-opening just to see how alike we all are. That's an insight in and of itself. Curious what other insights you gleaned or gained from your travels. I think one of the big ones is, at least for me, there is a very clear evolution that you go through when you are living in a different culture. And at first, everything is new and shiny and exciting. 
and fascinating, right? And, and so different from at home. And that's great. And you're noticing all the things that are in some ways better than how they are at home. And then after you're, you're there for a little bit and you, know, you start to miss some things from home, you start to, things that maybe were really cool at first are grading on you a little bit, you kind of swing the other way to, uh, wow, things are so much better at home and they're not as good here, you know, no matter where you are. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've lived a few different places and it's happened everywhere. And then the pendulum kind of swings back to the middle where you kind of get this balanced view of there are amazing things at home, there's amazing things here, and it's kind of a balance wherever you are. But you, you definitely notice the sway, you know, back and forth, and your feelings change as well as you're doing it. When you reflect and you look back at your life and you think about the moments that have made you who you are today, what are the moments that stand out that were monumental in importance? And when I say that, you know, this show, as you know, is all about insights. What are some insights that if you were to boil down and crystallize to the core primary insights that have made you who you are today, what would some of those be? So let's see. Starting with overseas, I think there is, living overseas is very isolating. You know, you're, you're moved away from your family, your friends, everyone at home. And it really forces you to do a lot of self-examination, but also to push yourself to go out, meet new people, put yourself in situations where you're going to be experiencing new things because it's all on your shoulders. It's a lot easier at home to just stay in your rut. And you want to make the most when you're overseas, but it takes a lot of effort and work. And I think I really learned to be more outgoing, to connect with more people, to push myself, you know, by having that experience. That was, that was definitely one of them. I think another was for a while thought that I would spend my life doing international business. I was fascinated with it. I spoke a couple languages and thought that would be a great use of my skills and a really interesting life. After I'd lived in Japan for a couple of years, I found living overseas was number one. It was tough. It was neat, but definitely to, uh, to the, your earlier point about creature comforts and different things that you miss, you miss stuff about home. But more importantly, I kind of look forward at what the path was. And I could marry someone in the US and move over to Japan with them. I could marry a Japanese person and move back with them and then go back and forth. I could stay in Japan and marry someone there and then be away from home. But I didn't see a lot of paths where I was gonna be home and kind of settled. And as romantic and interesting as that overseas life seemed in my early 20s, as I started getting into my mid 20s, it didn't hold the same appeal for me. And that was a kind of big realization and I shifted gears to say, okay, I gotta look at how I can stay put in the US a little bit more. Happy to go overseas if that chance arises, but I don't wanna have the core of my life revolve around either living overseas or traveling overseas all the time. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, going back to your first point about, it's interesting that you mentioned that you felt you needed to be a little bit more outgoing. That's what you're telling me essentially is it helped with some self-awareness. Perhaps that's an area that you needed to work on. Curious, if you acknowledged at that point that either you weren't naturally outgoing or that you just needed to be because of the situation you're in, what was the reason that stood out or or stands out to this day as something that was important for you? Outgoing may be the wrong word for it. I mean, it's more of pushing yourself to put yourself in situations where you can meet people. So it's one thing to be somewhere where you're meeting a lot of people And it's easy to be outgoing in that situation. But when you don't know anyone and you're trying to establish yourself somewhere, you have to put yourself in situations where you're connecting with people, 
right? It's kind of like if you want to go date, if you've broken up with someone, people aren't just showing up at your door. You got to figure out how you put yourself in situations where you can meet someone. It's the same thing when you're living overseas. You have to figure out outlets to get, you know, sports to get involved in or, you know, places that you want to hang out, just groups that are interesting that you want to be hanging with more and making a, a really solid effort, much more so than when you're here, or at least it felt like that to me because here you know how all that stuff works. Right. There, it takes a lot more effort to kind of figure it out and how it's wired and insert yourself into it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I recognize that to be the case. I think you also have your own network. You've built a network here. Most likely you have your friends, you have your family, you have your support group. When you live abroad, you're actually starting from scratch in a lot of ways. You may have a family that you live with, or you may have some school friends that may be there with you, but it still is a new ball game and a totally new opportunity really to create this life in existence for you in an, another part of the world. Curious, uh, you know, going back to, you know, you'd mentioned that you d- chose to go to Japan because at the time it looked like Japan was really starting to make itself the premier in a lot of ways, power and handwriting was on the wall at the time that it would be smart to have some knowledge of that culture and of Japan in general. Curious, as you started to look more into this, walk me through your thought process, expanding upon what I've already mentioned, but then also that was your major in college, if I'm not mistaken, right? At Stanford, you're, Correct. was yeah. it Japanese studies or what was the, mm-hmm. what was the major? And, and then why did you choose it? And then now that you reflect and look back, tell me, what you learned from that exposure. So I had come back from Belgium, fairly comfortable in French, wanted to learn a new language. Japanese seemed like a good option, given what you just talked about. Looked like we were all going to be working for the Japanese at that point. But I was also fascinated, as we were talking about earlier, with the culture. So different, you know, 250 years isolated from the rest of the world and kind of everything that came with that, the samurai, just all kinds of beautiful art, all kinds of stuff. So it was fascinating I studied it for a couple of years and wanted to go overseas for my junior year, had an opportunity to spend the whole year there, learned a ton, really enjoyed it, but also came back a little bit frustrated. I had spent a year in Belgium. My French really wasn't that good before, even though I lived there as a kid, I went to an American school. So I had a year in Belgium and learned French really well. I had studied at a college level in Japanese for two years, spent my junior year there in an intensive program and speaking Japanese all the time, immersed in the culture. And my Japanese was still worse than my French. I mean, it's just a hard <laughs> language. I can only imagine. It doesn't seem like it'd be the top of the list of easy languages to learn and master. No, the State Department has a ranking of, of languages, and it's kind of at the top of the list in terms of the number of hours and the difficulty required to get there. So I didn't know that at the time. I found that out the hard way, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, so... I came back and continued to study it a little bit. Really, it was super easy to be a Japanese major at that point because when I looked at all the requirements after spending a year there and having studied it before, I had one more class to take and then could take a bunch of other things I was interested in. So it was more a path of least resistance at that point than anything else. And I wanted to go back after college to work more, to learn more, to experience things more from a different perspective. And so I didn't want to go over and teach English, which is what a lot of people did at the time, to learn a little bit more. I joined a a company of 2,000 Japanese people. I was the only 
Westerner. There were two Chinese guys they hired. We were all part of some grand experiment on their part <laughs> to bring uh, diversity into their workplace. And it was a fascinating experience. It was an amazing experience, but also helped after a year plus of working there, helped me realize that was not where I wanted to spend my life. And at the time, the, the Japanese bubble was starting to weaken a little bit. So they didn't seem quite as all powerful on the one hand. And I was working in sales and marketing in this company and Japanese manufacturing at the time and engineering, they were really things of wonder. They were amazing. Right. That was when all the car companies were, you know, all the concern was American the car companies happens. were going away and the Japanese car companies were getting everything right. And the company I worked at had factories and the factories were, and you could eat off the floor. I mean, they were so well organized and amazing and everything organized and perfect. And, and it was fascinating. The sales and marketing practices seemed like 40 years behind the US. They didn't use any computers. It was very hierarchical and tons of bureaucracy. And it was fascinating. And it kind of removed some of the bloom for me in the process. And I decided that was certainly not, not where I wanted to spend my life, at least full-time working. So it was an interesting evolution. I'm, I'm really glad I did it. It was fascinating and People were incredibly kind and it was an amazing experience overall, but I definitely felt, wow, this is not how I want to spend my time. And so you came back. When you came back, what was your immediate landing spot? Did you look for work right away? Did you have something lined up before you came back? And I know you ended up into it. Curious when that happened relative to kind of your transition back to America. Yeah. So I had been Prior to that role in Japan, I had been very interested in finance. I'd worked at investment banks and capital banks and during college. And so I ended up getting a job basically at a small money management firm that also did some private equity investing. It was a very small shop, great experience, great mentor. Worked there for a couple of years, went to get an MBA, and then came back and worked for the same shop for another year and a half after getting my MBA. But as I was saying before, we were making these investments in companies. I was on the board of some of them. I was telling these CFOs or CEOs what we thought we, they should do. I'd never really run anything. And I could kind of see that when I was talking to them. They, were, they just would humor me, but they were super annoyed by having some 24-year-old kid, you know, being sitting there and you giving them instructions. You had a lot of world experience. I mean, that's for sure. Well, yeah, that and a quarter, you know, gets you a phone call or whatever. But um <laughs> So I didn't have the business experience. I didn't know their business. And, you know, it was the classic consultant. I was kind of parachuting in from above, telling them what I thought they should be doing, no appreciation for what it took to execute. And I came to realize that. And also, you know, I think partly at business school came to see that as well and decided I really wanted more hands-on experience. So started looking for jobs. I'd been interested in going to Silicon Valley, coming out of business school, put that on hold when I'd got this amazing offer from my old boss, but then even after a year and a half of doing that and working with him, decided the siren's call of operating and everything that was going on in Silicon Valley and the world changing was too great. And my wife really wanted to be up in the Bay Area, so that didn't hurt either. And so we went up and I joined into it, starting in business development, which was pretty much where they would hire me at that point, but eventually working my way over to product management, which really became what I loved, building products, figuring out problems and helping people solve them and you know building innovative, cool ways to do that and working with teams and, and doing that whole thing. And so worked it into it for about five years. 
And it was an amazing experience. It was a great company. I took away so many things from that company, insights, valuable lessons that, that I would apply the rest of my career. Good. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, what are they? I'm, I'm sure some of them come immediately to your head and some you'd probably have to think more about. One thing that um, interests me as you were speaking is the power of product manage being a product manager I, in a previous episode, I think you might've even listened to this episode with Toby. He said, somebody gave him some advice early on in his career and that's to be a product manager. And it's because you learn the ins and outs. It really helps. It's a great way to get your feet wet and to really understand the inner workings. If you want to be a CEO, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to run a business of some form, a great way to, I guess, practice is to be a product manager and to understand all the inner workings that encompass that. As you look at your experience at Intuit, what are some things that stand out, some takeaways, some learnings, and and why do you think you had? Is it because you were just open to accept those or was the company itself really well run? Were there leaders there that were great mentors for you? What were some of the reasons that these insights appeared? There were a lot of things about Intuit that I think made it a great training ground and, and great place to learn things. The management, the leadership was very solid. Scott Cook, who was the co-founder, was incredibly smart, but not really a people person. But he had brought in at some point Bill Campbell, and there's been a bunch of talk. You know, Bill Campbell helped coach some of the folks at Google and other places, and there's books out there. I think, uh, what's his name from uh, Google? Uh, Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt just uh, wrote a book about what an amazing coach Bill Campbell was. And he was the chairman of Intuit when I joined. He was just winding down there, but he had really imprinted a lot of what he felt was important onto the company. And a lot of that had to do with things like living the values. You know, when you joined the company, the values were not just pasted on the wall. They trained you on them. You got a class on them when you joined the company. And they were living, breathing things. You would sit in meetings with engineers and you would propose something and they would say, well, no, that's not doing right by the customer. That's our value. We can't do that. And so it was fascinating because I'd never worked anywhere prior to that where the values were anything more than a little card that they handed you when you joined the company or you know, posted on a wall somewhere. And it had such a profound impact on how the place was run and how people liked being there. It was also a place that really invested in training its people and growing them and giving people different opportunities, and actually taking care of them. I was there during 9-11, and there were people from Intuit around the US at 9-11, and they were stuck there because the whole air system was, was shut down. Scott Cook flew around in his private jet picking them up to bring them home at the time. Wow. And, and he didn't have to do that. Of course, yeah. But it set an example and really led from the top of how you treat people. And, and, you know, as I was going to go forward in my career, I would, I would take a lot of those lessons and a lot of those insights and try and use them to, to ultimately build the companies that I built after that. Well, as you're saying this, I, I feel like I should write a thank you letter to these guys because it's very clear and apparent that the company that I worked for, Varengo, really embodied a lot of the values, ideals, and approach that they took with Intuit, not least of which is the values being core and important to the way we operate. Clearly, I'm a training guy, so I, I take special note of that. But then the one that stands out the most is just taking care of your people, right? At the end of the day, we're all human beings. Yes, we have a job. Yes, we're doing this to make money. But ultimately, being a good person and giving to others and 
taking care of your people. I think it has to have a place in every company. And as I look at companies that are doing not just well as a business in terms of profit and quote unquote success, but are they taking care of their people? Are they taking care of the planet? Are they doing the right things? And so, yeah, that's that's amazing. Anything else that stands out? I want to kind of open it up, and you know, I want to anything else that stands out from your Intuit days? Sure. I mean, there were some tougher lessons, right? I I got there. I was a sole contributor, and I really, really felt that the best next step for me would be to learn to manage people if I wanted to be able to grow and run something. And so, whenever someone would ask me, you know, what are what are your goals? What do you want? I'd say, I want to manage someone. And after a while, they gave me someone to manage. And I realized that that was not the right goal. You don't want to manage someone. You want to manage someone good. (laughs) (laughs) Because I got someone who within three months was being pushed to manage them out for a whole variety of reasons. And it was not fun. It was a good experience. Sure, Um, sure, sure. But it also made me realize the difference between having good people or superstars on your team and not, and the importance of hiring. And Intuit generally was really good at that, by the way. They also put us through a lot of training on interviewing and hiring. And I was involved with going out and you know hiring MBAs every year and helping run that. But it really drove home the, the difference that people made. So you were at Intuit for how long? And then what remind me, what was your next home after that? Yeah, I was at Intuit for five years. And then we had had our first set of twins. And we were dying, all our families down in Southern California. We were alone with these two one-and-a-half-year-olds up in Northern California, had a big commute. And we just decided we needed to move back home for the help more than anything else. After my wife had really wanted to go to Northern California, (laughs) she was ready to come back, even though she swore. Where's she from originally? She's from L.A. as well. And she swore we would never live down here long term and... Funny how uh, two one-and-a-half-year-olds will change your mind about something like that. (laughs) When you have twins, you need the help, and you're going to do whatever's going to get you that help, which in this case, clearly being down here, you have a bigger bigger support system. Well, and her mom was right at the end of her career and offered to retire and help take care of the kids if we moved down, and I think that was all she needed to hear, and uh, it was the right choice for us. And we came down here, and it turned out to be a great choice because we ended up having another set of twins that... If we had been up there, I don't know how we would have done it. So moved down here and took another operating role. Totally agree with what you said about product management. It was incredibly valuable. And even and while I was at Intuit, they actually made the decision that product managers would become the business managers for all the business lines. So there were a bunch of different roles that were kind of equal, product marketing, product management, engineering, like all these different roles but they picked product management to be kind of the person that the virtual org would report into because they just felt that was right at the center of the web and the skill sets that you talked about before. And I wanted to continue on that path and I took a general management role at a private company down here. And it was also a good experience. I had a lot of responsibility, I grew a lot. It was also a company that was not really had a mission that I didn't agree with or a lack of a mission and and was doing some things that I wasn't really comfortable with. And the guy running it was super nice, but it just wasn't in line with my values, my personal values. Um, And I ended up, I was there for two and a half years and I ended up getting fired from there. It's really the, the only time in my career I've ever been like go from a company like that. And it was great. It was great in hindsight. It was pretty shocking at the time, but 
I was really happy that it had happened. I wasn't happy there. I was struggling, you know, just personally. And I was at another award ceremony one time and a guy stood up and said, I want to dedicate this award. It was for entrepreneurship or entrepreneur of the year or something. He said, I want to dedicate it to, you know, my old boss who really inspired me to do this by telling me I was fired, (laughs) right? Like that kind of kick in the butt is pretty motivating and inspirational if you take it the right way. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think telling me something that I think is a a common outcome of what can be or can at least per, be perceived to be a very negative thing, it could be turned into something very positive and it might not feel that way at the time. Sometimes we go through breakups that are painful and those breakups end up being the best thing that could have happened to us. And that breakup in some cases is a breakup at work and it gives you the opportunity to have a fresh start and a new chapter and that new chapter could bring incredible things. So what was your next new chapter after that? So let me circle back to another interesting insight I got from Intuit because it it leads to the next chapter, which was, I mentioned I was helping with hiring. We hired this MBA student out of Stanford who was fantastic, super nice guy, joined my team, was doing great. Everyone loved working for him and with him. And then he quit. And we had a great working relationship. We're still friends to this day. And I was astounded. Because at that time, it was a great company to work for. Comp was good. The stock was doing well. It was just not the kind of place you left really easily. And he said he was going out with a buddy to go find a company to buy, do a search fund, which I'd never even heard of at the time. And basically what it is is it's an unfunded private equity play. You go out, you try and find a company to buy. Once you buy it, you have a bunch of people who have said, we'll probably invest if you find something. Let us know what it looks like. And then they invest and you buy it and you run it. And he did it and loved it and was happy and successful. And it was just this whole insight into a different way of going out there and doing things that I didn't realize was even there. And there was a big culture. It really started out of Stanford Business School and that was where it started. It's expanded now and there's a lot more opportunities to do that now. And it's a little more common. So I had a friend from high school that we got along really well and had always talked about doing something together. And we looked at it a couple of times and the timing was never right. And he was making too much at a job or too, too liked his company too much, or I did. And you know, whatever it was, it was never the right time for both of us to jump out and do that. And then when this happened, the stars kind of aligned and we both decided we would go out and do this together. And so we decided to go try and find a company to buy. And that became the genesis of Varengo. Wow, what a great lead-in. And I know that friend that you're speaking of is Ken Button, who is an amazing guy. And I, I just love your story, the fact that you guys knew each other from high school and had the thought of aligning forces and doing something. And you just waited for the right time. So walk me through, once you kind of started to get the feeling that this maybe was the right time, how did you end up finding the company that you transformed into what we now know as Varengo? How did you find that company? And Walk me through the sort of initial days of getting that started, because that was obviously before I started, not too far before, because I did join a bit after the company was formed, but curious what it was like the early days. Yeah. So first, Ken and I decided we we wanted to do this together. And, and we've been super close friends, best men at each other's weddings, kind of friends, you know, dating and that close all the way back to ninth grade, basically. So when we told people that we thought we were going to do this, everyone told us it was the worst idea they had ever heard, right? (laughs) So the friendship's going to blow up. It's going to be awful. 
you know, and, and there is a, some truth to that, right? When people go into business together, oftentimes you wind up having to either choose the business or your friend at the end of the day. And there's a lot of conflict and you don't always see things eye to eye. Uh, so everyone told us we were crazy, that it was a bad idea, that we shouldn't do it. We went ahead and did it. Of course, like we were talking about previously, everything takes longer than you think it's going to be. We figured we'd be able to find a company in a year, year and a half. It ended up taking over two years, which was way more than our wives were expecting, <laughs> way more than we were expecting. And we were looking in a couple of industries. I mean, we, we love the solar space. We thought it was a huge opportunity. We love the idea of making a difference in the world. I'd taken engineering and environmental engineering classes and going back to college and it was something I was really passionate about, but there just weren't that many ways to make a business out of that back then. And this seemed like an amazing opportunity. And we were looking at other things like organic foods and other things that were making the world better. But solar was really exciting. The problem was everyone else thought so too at the time. And so it was very hard to find a small solar business that someone would sell or at least sell at a reasonable rate. So we looked at it and felt, wow, what you do in solar, sell across the table from someone, get them, you know, measure the roof, order the stuff, install it. It's not all that different from other home improvements that people sell. So we started looking at businesses like that and ultimately bought a company that became Varengo Solar. They weren't doing any solar at the time. They were doing replacement windows and some other energy efficiency products, but they were all sold with an energy efficiency message. And so they had the 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 base. Right, the, the bones were go. there. We were incredibly smart and bought this company at the beginning of 2008, <laughs> right as the economy was cratering down. And for a while, it looked like we were going to be the fastest imploding search fund ever. It looked like we were going to be out of business in six months after we bought the company. I mean, all the wheels came off right away. And it was by far the most stressful time work-wise of my life. Everyone was looking to us for direction. We were still trying to figure out which way was up in this new company, in this new industry. We were trying to move it over into solar. The core business was just drying up and disappearing for a couple of years. And it was incredibly, incredibly challenging. So it's probably a good thing you weren't there in those early years. It was not fun. <laughs> uh, and you were instrumental in helping build what we ultimately had. We had to tear out a lot of sort of the old habits that were there. There was a lot of amazing stuff that was there, but there were also some things that were not so great. And bringing people like you in with the right attitude, the right values, the right capabilities, and the right growth mindset were really instrumental to helping helping turn things around. But it took a while to get to that point. First, we had to decide if we were going to just throw in the towel or save it, and if we were going to save it, what that was going to look like. And that was really tough. And again, you talk about learning moments and opportunities where you have a lot of insights. There were a lot that year. I mean, it was really valuable and really worthwhile. I'm glad. It's one of those things, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Sure, came sure. out the other side and with a lot of lessons, but it was a tough time. So it sounds like you could have gone one of two ways. What was the tipping point that allowed you to stay and continue on the, the track that you intended to be on, which was to make the company successful? After six months, we were clearly running out of money. We had put extra money into the company when we bought it to move it over into solar, and that immediately got just sucked up in operating expenses as the economy 
really struggled and their core business disappeared. And we were just trying to plug holes in the dike everywhere we could with our fingers, trying to learn stuff, trying to hold on to people that knew what they were doing. It was really, really hard. And advisors were unbelievably important to us. Having, we had a, a board of advisors that we had pulled together prior to actually doing the deal who we could turn to for advice. And having, call it gray hair, you know, perspective, mm-hmm. people who had been through the trenches before, who had seen maybe not that exact business cycle, but some really rough times and could help navigate was really important. I, I learned a, a couple of things, right? Like I learned, for me at least, the importance of having a partner to lean on was unbelievably important. I don't think I could have done it on my own. There are some people that can never imagine working with a partner and have to do it on their own. For me, building something with a partner is incredible because there are times when you're down, there are times when they're down, you guys need to prop each other up. And if it's a positive relationship and there's a lot of trust, it makes it so much easier to get through the hard times and it's a lot more fun to have someone to celebrate with on the good times. So that was an, I thought that going in, I mean, it confirmed it and all the naysayers were wrong. You know, we went through unbelievably hard times we worked really well together. You know, we're still partners today and it's over 10 years later and we've been through a lot of rocky times, a lot of good times and our friendship and relationship at work is as good as ever. So that's been nice and it's kind of, uh, it's a happy thing that everyone was wrong on that front. <laughs> so conventional wisdom can be wrong sometimes, I guess, is, is one of the lessons there. I think the other thing was an insight at that point of just, Willpower, willpower is the wrong word, but your intention is really what matters at the end of the day. You know, I remember one of our advisors who had been a serial entrepreneur, really smart, really interesting guy. He just was looking at us and saying, you got two ways you can go here. You can throw in the towel or you can double down, but don't double down if you don't think you can give it your all. And if you don't really feel like you believe that you can make a difference here. And we went back and we put together a plan for what it would take to shift even more quickly into solar because that was showing some promise. And we went out to our investors basically saying, we can throw in the towel. And this was now October of 2008, which if anything was a worse time than February 2008. I mean, the economy was, the stock market was in free fall. Everything was bad. And we went back to them and said, here's our plan for saving the company. We believe we can do this. We're showing good signs here. We'd like you to invest. We understand if you don't want to. We gave up a whole bunch of stuff from you know our rights. We slashed our salary. We gave up our stock that we own. We did everything we could to try and save the company. And I think 85% of our investors stepped up and invested. I remember talking to one, one of my old bosses who had you know put some money in, who basically looked at me and said, I'm losing a percent or two a day in the stock market at this point. I don't see that you guys could do that much worse, (laughs) which wasn't exactly the vote of confidence we were hoping for, but he still invested and it was a vote of confidence at some level. People stepped up, they put the money in and we were able to execute on the plan and change things. And it really just came from force of will at that point. I mean, if we had thought we were done, we were done. And if we thought that we could save it and it was an incredible experience to really see that difference and see it manifest and actually happen. 
And it's one thing to be in that role at a company when you're working for someone else, but and there's always someone backstopping you. You know, there, there, there's always somewhere else the buck moves up the chain or someone to take responsibility or for them to say it's their issue or whatever it is. And even though I had been a general manager and had P&L responsibility in previous roles and felt like I knew what that was like and I was ready for it, when you're sitting in that seat and you're the end of the line and buck everything, stops there, yeah. everything goes to you and there's no one behind you, it... uh it's a very different feeling and it's tough, but, but it's also liberating in some ways um, because you do see like you can make a difference and it's on your shoulders. And it must have been nice to know that you have the support of your investors. That's pretty incredible that 85% of your investors did show you the support. That probably put a bit of wind in your sails, at least giving you the belief that, hey, if they believe in me, I should probably believe in myself. Yeah, I think that was valuable. We had to believe in ourselves first because <laughs> investors smell out fear. And <laughs> these were not all people that were related to us, uh, you know, who would have invested no matter what. Most of them we didn't know prior to prior to actually doing the investment. And we had to be convinced. We didn't want to take more money if we didn't really believe that we could do it. If, right. I mean, if it was like, hey, there's a 20% chance, that didn't feel like a good thing to do to people. We had to be really convinced and have faith that we could make a difference. And, and we were able to do that. It was still hard, but, but their commitment and their faith, I think, was a reflection of, of our confidence that we could, but was incredibly reassuring also, to your point. I mean, yeah. It was really, really nice. I, I can only imagine. And, and so you talked about your advisors and not knowing many of them. How, how did you find them? They ranged from people we were related to that we respected a lot to people we had come across in business. You know, you kind of collect mentors and different people along the way to people that we were connected to because this was a new industry. We were trying to figure it out. And you'd talk to other people you respected and they'd say, here's someone you should get to know. And then you network and you get to meet them and hope that in the, they will, uh, in the kindness of their heart, give you some advice and, and help put you uh, on the right path sometimes. So it was a whole hodgepodge of things and kind of back to the kindness of others that we talked about overseas. When you're living overseas, you see how unbelievably nice people are to each other. You know, as, as a foreigner in their country, they do unbelievable things to make your life easier, to show you their world, or just to show you that they want to be closer and forge a connection. It's really neat. I found the same thing in business. People are unbelievably willing to help out for the most part. If you just ask them for advice, you know, there's that whole thing about don't ask for money, ask for advice and you'll get the money. I mean, I guess there's some truth to that, but there's even more truth that if you just want advice, there's a lot out there that you can get. And people like to share what they've learned, especially as they're slowing down in their careers and feel like they want to give back and help other people. And we've talked about how do you make a difference you just need to go out and ask and find those people. And, you know, there's an unbelievable amount of people that are just willing to say, sure. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that because I think a lot of people are stuck in this maybe fear that people aren't willing to give advice or that for some reason they're not going to have the time or won't want to donate some of their time to provide advice or feedback. You've mentioned, you know, there's, there's two things that I'm thinking about as we're talking. One is I want to circle back to the partner piece because I know that's been something that not only has really 
informed a lot of the trajectory of your own career and the, and the businesses that you've started as a result of having a really strong partnership. And you already have alluded to some of the reasons that's been successful, but then the advisors as well. So maybe let's start with the partnership um, and then we can go back to advisors. But what are you, you'd mentioned that some people probably are afraid of having partners, others like yourself and Ken, where you thrive in a, in a opportunity to have somebody to work with. You've mentioned some things already. What else stands out as some benefits or some things that have helped you in terms of having a partnership and being aligned with somebody in in business? When I think about it, I've seen a lot of partnerships blow up over time. I don't know if I would say that I think it's that people are afraid to have partners in some cases. I just think that there's good reasons to be cautious. It's hard. It's like a marriage. And my wife jokes and calls Ken my, my second wife, or sometimes my first wife. We spend a lot of time together. And marriages are hard and take work. And, and they thrive on trust. And so if you have that in a good relationship, then it makes things easy and it, it makes things fun and it makes things move faster and everything else. And if you don't have that, it's a lot of friction on the business. You know, If you're sitting there worried about what your partner is doing or saying or if they're doing the right thing, that can be pretty tough. And the same thing, you know, we've talked about this before, having an incredible, like as an entrepreneur, having the support of someone like a, like having the support of your spouse is unbelievably important, at least for me, from my perspective, because it is so hard to create something out of nothing and it requires so much effort and commitment and sacrifice. And there's so much that you deal with at work it's really hard to imagine coming home from all that conflict and having to deal with more conflict. So having a great supportive relationship and spouse to me was also an incredibly important factor. Another kind of partnership that behind the scenes in terms of making it work, nod to my wife. But for Ken, you know, we we went back as I said to high school to getting in trouble together, to having each other's back back then, and, and knowing you could trust them then, and carrying that forward in college. You know, we both went to school in the Bay Area to different schools, and we were back and forth to see each other, and just had a very, very tight relationship. He introduced me to my wife at one point. My sister introduced him to his wife, so he's almost like That's family, amazing. but in the best ways. And because there's that inherent trust both in terms of is he acting in my in his own interest or in what's good for both of us, but also in judgment and capabilities. He's very smart. He does things really well. I know that if we have six things to do and I give him three, he's going to do a great job on them. And I think he feels the same way about me. So you're not really worried. Like, do I have to second guess? Do I have to go over and make sure he's doing it? And having that trust and all those different dimensions just allows you to build more quickly, to execute better to we traded different areas of Varengo as we were building it back and forth just based on bandwidth next year finance is going to report to you because i got too much going on with sales and marketing and a few other things here and so our investors didn't like that we didn't really have a single we, we really were co-ceos but they insisted that we have a ceo and a president so on paper, you know, we had one report to the other, but we were really just partners the whole time. And again, another way people didn't like that, like that structure, but it, 
it worked really well for us. And I guess you can tell me, but you know, I, I think it generally worked pretty well in terms of getting things done in the company, communicating, and also you know, being able to move quickly as well. Yeah, I think I can speak for pretty much most, if not all the people that I know that worked at Varengo that would say that you and Ken did a fabulous job and really created the type of environment where you love coming to work, you enjoy and believe in what you're doing and the people that you work with, it matters, right? You want to make sure that you're, this is your second home. And in some cases, you're spending more time there than you do with your family. And if you're not enjoying the people you're working with, that's a problem. You probably should look for another job. And so you created that culture, you created that environment. And I think a lot of people look back and look back extremely fondly of their Varengo days. And I, I put that in quotes because I, I've heard so many people say, oh, back in the Varengo days, back in the Varengo days. You only say that if it's a good thing, usually. And it is. It's a good thing. And you should feel really good about the, the culture you created. There's a couple of things that are in my mind right now. One is just circling back on the advisors piece. And then I do want to talk a little bit about Bear Tree because you talked about your rival schools in a sense. You know, one of you went to Cal, the other went to Stanford. So you named your company Bear Tree, uh, which I love. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about the advisor piece, because I know this is something that not only was important at Varengo, but just in life in general, having people who, as you said, maybe maybe they have gray hair, which is another way of saying they have some experience, uh, but more than anything, that they're going to give um, an insight or perspective that you may not have yourself. Talk to me a little bit about why you think having advisors is so important. You talked already about how you found some of those advisors, but if you have any other tips or strategies on how to align yourself, I know network, networking is important. So curious your thoughts for the, for the listeners out there that do want to develop an advisor sort of circle. What would you suggest? Sure. So I think the further up the management chain you go, the less willing people often are to speak truth to you. No matter how much you try and encourage it and tell them to do it, there's a hesitation, there's a reluctance to do that and you have to really pull it out of people. So you need people to call you, I don't know if we can cuss on here, but- uh, Go ahead, I'll, put, I'll make this one explicit, <laughs> go for it, man. Well, you need people to call you on your shit, like when you're getting too full of yourself, when you're thinking about something the wrong way. And we tried really hard to build teams that would do that. We did not want yes men or women. We wanted people that would pushback and where we could have, you know, vigorous debates. But people are much more willing to do that on business issues than on personal issues where you're not doing things maybe the way that you should be doing. And advisors can be incredible mentors can be really really helpful. A wife can be really helpful or a husband in that case as well. I, my wife I like to think has made me a much better manager, a much better leader because she does help me understand when I'm doing something wrong or, you know, like <laughs> she, a little she full your, of shit. She uh, knows your blind spots probably. And, and helps and, and is willing to tell, like point them out in a, in a very kind, loving way most of the time. But advisors are like that as well. I mean, they will tell you, they, don't, they often don't have an investment or a meaningful investment in the company. They're there to help you and that's really valuable. And mentors, it's the same kind of thing in your life. When you can sit down and talk to them and all they really care about is you, not some financial interest or anything else, they take a different perspective. It's not, how do I steer this to, to make this worth my while? It's about, here's someone I care for, and how do I make them a better person or more successful or whatever the case may be? And so finding those people and keeping them in your network is, I just think, really important. And there's lots of ways to do that. You can reach out to them. You, you should 
find them. We tried to encourage a mentoring program at, at Varengo, as you know, working with people and advising people. Intuit did that as well. Just as you meet people in life, and sometimes you'll find people where there's a connection and you talk about stuff and you can cultivate that relationship. Again, like we talked about before, just asking someone, a lot of times they're flattered and they're happy to give you advice. And I've had a lot of people in my career just willing to do that. Ken and I both are willing to do that with younger entrepreneurs now, right? People reach out to us, they want some advice, they want to meet and bounce ideas off us, and we're happy to help. It's, I feel like it's our way of giving back. So I think that's, that's really important. And then there's networking groups where you can do the same thing. I mean, we've talked about it. I, I, I was in an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And part of it is putting you into groups of six to eight people typically where they call it your personal board of advisors. It's like a group that you meet with once a month and you talk about issues that are on your mind. They don't have an investment in you. They're not even necessarily your friend in a lot of cases. They're, they're just there to listen and really help you understand what some different ways of handling the situation might be. And that's incredibly valuable to have that unbiased view and that perspective in your life. Without ambition, right? I was listening to a podcast with Brian Grazer and he's talking about the power of connection and looking to people's eyes. And one of the things he highlights is, you know, looking in somebody's eyes, but w without ambition. And in the case of what you're talking about, it's an advisor that's advising uh, out of pure, just the willingness to want to help and without personal gain. It's a more selfless approach and a, less of the approach where they're, they stand to gain something. So I, I think that's a really valuable insight. I love that. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about Bill Campbell before and he was coaching Steve Jobs, Eric Schmidt. I mean, these incredible people and he was doing it for free. He, he felt like he'd made enough money. He was comfortable and he felt this was his opportunity to give back and share what he had learned and help make those people better. And it's pretty inspirational. There is a currency that exists for the feeling you get helping somebody. And even though it might not be monetary, I think just the gratification and the ability to put your head down on the pillow at night, knowing that you made somebody better in some way, shape or form is a really healthy feeling to have. I do want to talk about YPO. Before we do, I, I wanted to uh, mention Bear Tree. I don't know what in addition to what you've already shared, but can you talk a little bit about the formation of that? I don't know, was that, was Varenga, was that formed primarily to act as the sort of the entity that would ultimately buy, you know, companies and then take those companies and, and make them successful? Is that sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of dumbing it down in a sense, but can you talk a little bit about that, that formation and, you know, how you came, I'm going to be next week, I'm going to be in Berkeley. So I'm not, I'm not going to be at your alma mater. I'll be at Ken's alma mater, but I would love the opportunity to go to Stanford at some point. So talk a little bit about Bear Tree. Yeah, that was just a fun name for us. I mean, you know, there's, it's a big rivalry up in the Bay area. Got a big game every year. Ken went to Cal, as you mentioned, I went to Stanford. It seemed like a fun name to bring the two together and Bear Tree sounded a lot better than Treed Bear. Um, <laughs> So that was just the entity that we could make investments out of and, you know, that we ultimately bought what was going to become Varengo and ran it from. So there wasn't a huge story there, but, uh, you know, it does show that 
healthy rivalries can also uh, make for healthy partnerships. I know this firsthand as a lifelong Bruin fan and marrying a Trojan fan whose whole family went to USC. We have a divided house. And unfortunately, I'm the recipient of buying season seats to the Trojans game every year. So I can understand how you make compromise. But when there's trust, when there's love, uh, you, you're willing to look back. Uh, look past those sort of things. I feel for you. That's a, that is a big sacrifice. It's impressive. <laughs> Indeed. So I want to talk about YPO. This is an organization I'm fascinated by. Obviously, it's it's really well known in terms of aligning incredible business people that have a proven track record and who have run companies. And there's a, a barrier of entry to get in and to be invited into the organization. I know they do some incredible things. So we'd love for you to share your journey and how you first got into YPO, but then also how you've um, really taken that organization and, and become so involved yourself. Yeah. So I had never heard of YPO. I finished business school, was working, and my wife's stepfather was a member of YPO. And we always talk about the advice that he got from the people in it, the events that they would go to that were these amazing learning events, the, you know, the networking that was part of it. And it sounded fascinating. It sounded like a really neat group. I'm not a real country club kind of person, but it's a little (laughs) bit of the networking part of the country club, but with education and some really interesting other angles thrown in. Like, like we talked about the, uh, you know, the forum experience where it's kind of like a personal board of advisors as well. And so the more I learned about it, the more interested I became it became a goal of mine to join, but you have to be running a company in a company of a certain size by the time that you're 45, really, to join. Because it's young president's organization, correct? That's where they determine young start. <laughs> you, you can stay until you're 50. It's a little bit like Logan's Run. If, if, I don't know if you remember that movie, but you turn you know, a certain age, your crystal turns black, and <laughs> then you're done. You're no, done. No more chance. Exactly. So it was a goal of mine to join. One of the companies that I, the company I joined after Intuit, the path was for me to be running a big chunk of it that would be qualifying for YPO, and then obviously that didn't work out. And so you know, as we were going to buy a company, that was the, the other path to go do it. And it ended up working out. And both Ken and I joined YPO pretty quickly after we bought the you know, Varengo or what became Varengo. And it was a great experience. There are educational events where you learn things about how companies are run or how people have gone through unbelievably difficult times and persevered and you know what it took to do that. There's learning opportunities. There's great networking. It was really important for us as we were building Varengo. People were very interested in solar. And you know, as a fellow YPOer, they were interested in getting it from me. We got a call one day, someone here in LA who was building a enorm- an enormous, enormous house. And it came in as a cold call to our call center from their architect, who then they got transferred over to me eventually. And they, they, they said they needed a quote for a 75,000 square foot house. <laughs> That's insane. And I explained to them, like, we can't really quote for houses based on the property size. It has to be the actual house size. And they cracked up and they explained, you know, what the situation was. But, you know, that was really important to helping us get on the map as we were starting up and that kind of credibility and stuff. So it was really valuable from a networking perspective. And people in YPO are unbelievably willing to help, maybe not to do business with each other always, but to give advice, to make connections, to do all kinds of things. There's a very valuable networking component 
But I do think the most valuable part is really that forum experience where you're broken into a group of six to eight, maybe 10 people, a mix of people, mix of industries, big companies, small family businesses, public in some cases. And you get all these different perspectives from all these people running companies. And it's incredibly eye-opening to see what people are going through. It's also incredibly helpful when you have a problem, someone in that room has probably dealt with something similar and has perspective on it, or usually it's a couple of someone's in that room. And that can be not just for work stuff, but for personal stuff as well. It's a really powerful, valuable experience, I thought. Well, going back to what you said, when you move up, it's almost like the fewer people you have to talk to, especially those willing to share freely, honestly, and openly. And having some people that you can talk to, albeit they may not be in your business, but they have their own unique perspectives. They have their own unique experiences that they could draw upon. And if they are able to somehow tether back to what you're going through and give some insights, it could be valuable. How often would you meet in those forum groups? And, and did you do that for the entire time you were at Varenga? Are you still doing it today? So different YPO has different chapters based on geographies and they have different rules. Ours was if you're in YPO, you need to be in a forum. So as long as you're in the organization, you need to be in a forum. So I was in for about 10 years and I was in a forum the whole time that I was in. Two different forums. At one point I changed. And as far as meeting um, from September through June, you meet once a month and it's a big chunk of time. It's usually five, six hours. Oh, wow. So you usually, you know, you'll start at 3.30 or something like that and go through dinner, 9.30, 10 or something like that. Most of it's a meeting, but then you'll have a dinner together that's a little more casual. And and there's a very typically structured format that you go through that kind of helps bring value out of the experience. I love it. Well, it sounds like it's been a great, you know, for for a lot of reasons, it's been a, a great organization to be a part of, not, not least of which is having and building the relationships and leveraging others in terms of their knowledge and learning from each other. And, you know, clearly it's, it was a, a goal of yours to join and it sounds like it was a goal worthwhile. Speaking of goals and, and speaking of things worthwhile, over lunch, we were talking about this organization that you're now on the board of, and it's doing some incredible things. I would love for you to share. It's KIPP, K-I-P-P. So then it's the Knowledge is Power program. I'd love for you to share what that program is all about, how you got affiliated, and what the good work they're doing uh, is all about. Sure. Happy to talk about KIPP LA. It's, it's an amazing organization. So it's a charter school organization here in Los Angeles, actually in all Southern California. KIPP is a national organization started by a couple of guys very, who were doing Teach for America that were very frustrated with the experience of kids in inner cities in public schools and felt like there should be better options. And so they started it in Houston and now have expanded to a lot of cities. And it's each city is kind of run as its own franchise. Here in LA, we have about 20 schools, or in Southern California, we have about 20 schools all grammar schools and middle schools, all focused on low income, East and South Los Angeles. We just opened up, uh, we just uh, merged with a group in San Diego. So we have a school in San Diego now as well. And you know, I think it's 90% of the kids are on free or reduced lunch, um, really needy kids. All lottery system, all public school. Um, they're all, uh, charter schools are public schools in California. And the schools are, 
unbelievably well run. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that that we tried to do at Varengo in terms of being very metrics driven and very results oriented that was important to me that drew me to this organization because they, number one, have an incredible mission that they care about. Number two, they're very passionate about measuring those outcomes and making sure that they're delivering and, uh, and living up to the promise and delivering. And I think at this point, it's almost 10,000 kids that they've educated in South and East LA. And those kids normally come from zip codes where between two to 8%, depending on the statistic you look at, are likely to graduate from college if you start as a kid in that neighborhood. And we're still working through those numbers, but 90 plus percent of our kids are attending college. We don't even have a high school for the organization. They go to different local high schools around, but we get them on the right path. And doing that early is just so important. And then once they're there, 90 plus percent are attending college and graduation rates are in line with the rest of the country for you know the average across the US as opposed to what these kids would normally be expecting coming out of those neighborhoods. So incredibly well-run organization, making a huge difference in these families and these kids' lives. And, and most importantly, and we were talking about this at lunch a little bit, my great-grandparents came here from Russia, Poland, you know, Lithuania, like all those areas with nothing. And my whole family and my wife's family are all products of public education in this country and social mobility, the ability to move and succeed and do well. And a great public education system has just been fundamental to that in our history. At least, and you can argue that it wasn't open to everyone, and I think there's a lot of validity to that and a lot of ways that people were left out of that historically. Separate issue, but there were a lot of opportunities for at least many people to participate and improve themselves and pull themselves up by their bootstraps, if you will. And that's changing now as investment in public education has just gone sideways for so or down for so many reasons. It just feels incredibly unfair. It feels that you're locking these people into a cycle that is not what is right about America. There should be the opportunity if you apply yourself to live a better life. And pretty much education is the only way that you can do that. And you have to give people a chance to get an education, to go to college, and to, to make a difference. Wow. Wow. I, I'm uh, first and foremost, thank you for being involved in this organization. Thank you for sharing it on the show. Um, it sounds absolutely extraordinary. And the results to back up the effort, right? It's not just effort, and then you don't see the intended outcome. You're actually seeing legitimate traction being made in a real and tangible way. Curious what you attribute that to. It sounds like the organization's very well run. How long have you been affiliated? You're on the board, correct? And then, so how long have you been affiliated with the organization and what do you attribute their success to? I've been involved for about six years now, I think. And I would say- So it's all you. It's, they were doing well before <laughs> me and they've been doing, doing well since I joined. I wish I could claim credit. What I was gonna say, and, and same thing that we were talking about at Varengo or anything else, it, it's all about the people, right? It's all about the mission, the people, the values. Do people believe in them? Do they want to make a difference? And, and results, right? You have to, you can't just talk the talk. You have to show that you're making a difference and you have to convince people that what they're doing, you know, work is hard. And like you said, we spend most of our life there 
you want to feel like you're making a difference in people's lives or in the world or whatever it is. There's all kinds of different ways to make a difference, but if you don't feel like you're making a difference, that's a pretty tough place to be. And at Kip, I Kip LA here, and I think in most of the Kips around the country, if not all, everyone believes they're making a difference. I mean, they're seeing the difference that they make in these kids' lives, and it's incredibly inspirational. Now, there's also a lot of other things, right? Like there's a real focus on education and learning and improving and measuring and continuous improvement and all kinds of stuff that go along with that. The woman that runs it, Marsha, is an amazing leader and really inspirational and really, really effective at just executing, which is, as you know, super hard to do. And the bigger you get, the harder it is. And she's been able to scale the organization and scale the team in an incredibly impressive way. So it's really the people and then obviously the processes and results and you know what they're focused on that, that makes the, the difference. But it all starts with the people. Yeah, so, so true. And the people matter. The process matters. Are you executing based on whatever that process is? Yet, what we find in business is sometimes things don't happen as fast as we want. Same is true for a nonprofit. Same is true for pretty much anything. And you highlighted that when we spoke maybe a few weeks ago over the phone, you said, I was asking you for some business advice as a a new entrepreneur in a sense. Uh, I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit, but I'm starting my business and I asked you for advice. And one of the bits of advice you gave me was things don't ever happen as fast as you think they will. Curious if you could expand upon that advice and talk a little bit about why you feel that's the case. Sure. Maybe it's just for me. I don't know, but I do hear it from a lot of other, I, <laughs> I do hear it from a lot of other people as well. You know, getting a business going is like getting a flywheel going, right? And once it gets going, it can be incredibly hard to kill, which is like the good thing about that flywheel spinning. Um, but getting it going is tough. And especially when you're small and starting out, you don't have a lot of resources, you don't have a lot of time, you don't have a lot of money typically when you're doing this. And so, and on top of that, you're an entrepreneur, which means by nature and by definition, you're optimistic. So one would hope. So you set timelines that are probably aggressive and that you think you will get done, but realistically are tough and light. And even if no matter how much of what you need to get done is within your control, there's just a lot of stuff that's out of your control. You know, you need to open your bank account and you go to the bank and the bank needs X, Y, and Z. And then you need to wait for the state to get you the paperwork from the bank and can't start selling until you have the EIN number and, you know, open your bank account and everything else. And so just life can be tougher. And especially when you don't have a lot of resources, it's not like you can hand it off to someone and say, go make this happen. It's you. And while you're doing that, that means you're not building your business, which means some other task is probably not getting pushed quite as fast as it might otherwise be pushed. So I just think that there is a combination of optimism life and just the nature of getting things off the ground. They're just tough to get going. Once they do get going, again, it can be great and start to build up momentum or a snowball and be hard to stop. But to get to that point is really challenging. Yeah. Once the momentum's generated, it does become a bit more challenging to change it, to change it, right? Different like, problem. You but... can stand in front of the snowball. The chances are it's going to roll you over. And you touched on something that I'm completely relate to as an optimist myself, 
being optimistic just is in my nature. And I think it's in most entrepreneurs' nature. And so it's funny because it's that balance. On one hand, you don't want to set low goals. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you're not striving to hit some high target. On the other hand, are you setting your targets so high that they're unrealistic? I hate using that word, but let's be honest, unrealistic. Uh, And therefore you're in your head thinking you're going to hit a certain mark by a certain date and then you don't end up doing it. What advice do you have for the entrepreneur that maybe they have a little Elon Musk in them, right? They're the type of person that shoots beyond the stars, right? They shoot into the other galaxy and you got to love that in in somebody like an Elon Musk. On the other hand, it doesn't always mean that you're going to hit the target at the date that you said. So how do you reconcile when you have that sort of innate quality, which is a quality, yet it may not be the most sound sort of, if you're looking at a very cerebral way or a very business way, way to manage your business from a, a timetable perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that as an entrepreneur, you always have this balance of vision of where you want to go and, and where you think you should be and reality, right? And, and you're always trying to push one into the other usually, hopefully, reality into the vision, but that's hard. And if you're someone like Elon Musk, who the vision's way out there, you better have a lot of cash to, you know, push, you know, be able to weather reality getting there over time. I think he's the extreme example of that. You know, his vision is amazing, but the execution required to get there, I think has curdled a lot of people's stomachs in terms of how much cash it's required in the time frame, And, you know, it's always kind of around the corner for the next step. And he's been masterful in, in negotiating that and managing that. I, I, I wouldn't say that that would be the, the model for most entrepreneurs because I think most will find themselves losing, having the grant, their knees cut out from under them yeah. before they, they can spend quite that long chasing after a vision. So it is that balance between vision and reality. You have to see how things are. And I was just reading on another podcast, uh, summary notes or something, um, I was reading about how if you create a new product, like a, a website or something or a podcast, it will probably take you three or four years before you really get to the point where that product reflects what you want it to be. You had the original vision, but just no matter how many resources, how much you throw at it, it's just it's not gonna get there. There's just gonna be a lot of things that get in between the full realization of the vision if you really get there in three or four years or at least a good realization of the vision and reality. And so you have to hold both of those in your mind. You have to make sure that your your real-world goals are moving you towards the target, but you have to keep your eye out on the horizon or wherever you're shooting for and get your team there as well, right, and, and paint that picture because it can be a grind, it can be depressing, on the way. I mean, there's a lot of exciting moments, but there's a lot of tough moments. And and that can be the challenging part, I think. And so, I don't know. It's probably the hardest part. And, you know, Ken and I, we talked about it with Varengo where we had to go back and decide, could we really do it and put a plan together and execute to it? And in that case, we actually were pretty close to hitting the plan and turning the corner when we did it. So maybe that didn't quite take as long. It felt like forever at the time because it was just such a brutal time. But getting this new business off the ground, even buying Varengo in the first place, you know, we put a time frame. We thought, oh, 12 months to 18 months, no problem. We'll find a business to buy. It took just over two years, like I said before. And 
that's stressful and hard. And you kind of draw this line in the sand and say, I'll go this far and no more. And I think the nature of being an entrepreneur is that the world laughs at you and wants to test you on that. You know, you say, I need to be here or I'm going to stop. And you'll be 20% shy of that line. So it's enough to look like you may get there, but you're not quite there. And you have to really decide if you want to keep going. And so it's tough, you know, with, with our current business, before we even, we just did a friends and family round. So we just raised a little bit of money, but before we did that, we self-funded it. And of course we blew through a couple of self-imposed deadlines of, you know, we'll get it off the ground by this point or else. Again, much to the chagrin of our wives, but also support of our wives. But we didn't wanna go out and take money from anyone until we really were convinced that we saw a really clear path. And then once we got there, you know, we were able to execute and make a difference and, and, and do well. But to get to that point took a while. And in the early days of creating a company, it's really, really tough. Well, it goes back to your point earlier about the conviction and belief that you have has to be so, so, so strong. Well, before you take on investors or can feel good about taking on investors, you yourself have to believe at your core that it will be successful. We talked a lot about the early days of Varengo, but we didn't get too much into what happened after you put the cards on the table, you doubled down and you said, yeah, we're going to go for it. And you got the support of the investors Curious, you know, I mentioned I had an amazing ride there. So did so many other people. But what are the biggest learnings you took away from Varengo, both in terms of what you did well, but also maybe some things where if you could go back and tinker a little bit, what maybe did you learn that maybe didn't go as well? So there was so much that was amazing about the Varengo experience, right? Building a, a company up. Actually, we, you know, we, we bought a company, but then really, I think, shifted the culture there. We took the best of what was there and then really built on it and made it our own. Being able to do that and having an organization, we won best place to work awards. You know, we, our employees brought people in from all over. I mean, we, it was a, a great culture, but not just a great culture to work at, but we, it was a culture that was really results oriented, right? And focused and well-run and metrics driven. And, and building that was incredibly rewarding and you know we had a lot of different investors come through that had looked at a lot of different solar companies and we always got the same feedback that we were the best run solar company that they had seen for doing what we did which was incredibly rewarding the fact that the solar space is an incredibly hard place to make money is a different issue one of the big takeaways i'd say i, I mean a couple of takeaways like building the culture was great building a metrics oriented culture was great just making a difference in the world was so inspirational Right, we we put solar on over fifteen thousand roofs throughout California, back east. Early days, mind you, where it, it was difficult to convince people that solar was a real thing. Take it from me. I mean, yeah, they usually were thinking it was going to be something that was going to heat the water in their pool or something. That was pretty much their only experience with it at that point. It was pretty tough, but it was rewarding. And figuring out how to do that and make a difference was amazing. So, one of the interesting lessons learned, I'd say, you know, we were at we so. Back to your story, you know, we turned things around, we were growing, we were profitable, we were doing nicely, and we got to this crossroads where we could have kept on the path we were going and kept growing 20, 25% a year. Nice growth rate, but there were, the market was exploding and we needed capital if we really wanted to go bigger, faster, wider. And we, we were really on the fence for what to do. Did we take an investment and chase the gold ring 
or did we just keep growing on the path we were on? And we had advisors that really counseled us in different directions. You know, there were plenty that said there's nothing wrong with getting rich slowly or trying to in any, in any event and just kind of growing the business. And others that felt, as you said, there's this wave going, this is the time and, you know, you should double down and do everything you can to take advantage of it. So we ended up doing that. And I think in hindsight, that was the wrong decision. We grew really big, really quickly, and we did it actually in a profitable way, which was sort of unheard of in the solar industry at that time. But then a lot of things changed in the industry. Like there was a trade war over solar panels, you know, some rules on accounting changed and margins got tighter and some things happened on the competitive front with your old company and all kinds of stuff uh, at Solar City, And so it just got really tough. And when you're much bigger, as we were talking about at lunch, it's just much harder to move a battleship than to move like a PT cruiser or something like that. And so the fact that we had gotten so big and had expanded and were multi-geographies, we were being pushed by you know the new money that came in to chase the billion dollar dream and figure out how to get to a billion dollars of revenue. And if we had just been content to say, hey, we're gonna get to 50 and then 75 and have a nice profitable business and stay local or regional, that ultimately would have been a really successful strategy. And going too big, I think all the solar companies that did that found that when things got tough, it got really hard. And um, all of them, unless they had a finance company behind them, really struggled, and we did too. You shared earlier at lunch this analogy about how you can really effectively move large organizations, you use the number of 1,000 people. Would you mind sharing that for the audience? Yeah, so, I mean, we talked about this because at Verengo, we had over a 1,000 people at our peak, and I can't remember where I saw this example, but, you know, they said, if you're one person and you want to run a 1,000 feet, you can go a 1,000 feet forward and make a huge amount of progress by yourself. But if you have a 1,000 people and you want to move a 1,000 feet, if everyone takes one step forward, that's actually a 1,000 feet moving. It's one foot for every single person. And it's that's about as far as you get <laughs> with the same amount of effort. So one person can do unbelievable amounts in early days and change and adapt and weave and bob and duck and you know do everything they need to to build and succeed the business. And a small team can be very nimble and move very quickly. And the bigger you get, the, the harder it is to move quickly. I mean, I think we were good at Varengo at communicating and driving change, but it just is hard and it takes a lot of time and resource and it can be tough in an industry as volatile and as crazy as solar. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So you've given a lot of advice so far, wondering what advice you'd give if there was one thing that you could share with a new entrepreneur, a new business owner and say, Hey, this is the one thing that I think will help you in your journey. What would that one thing be? I would say, make sure you're doing something that you love. And that's very different than doing something that you're passionate about, right? Because a lot of people chase after businesses that they're passionate about. There's not really a business model there. You know, you could decide that you want to make cakes for dogs or something like that and that that's your passion. But you may have a hard time with a bakery, you know, when people don't show up. Actually, you may be onto something, could, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It probably exists as far, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. But that's different than doing something you love. Like I, I love doing, like building things, like building, you know, being a pro product manager at my heart, building software, whether building a solar company, building, you know, my current business and doing what we do. If you're loving what you're doing, 
then I think it becomes very easy to pour yourself into your work and to succeed and to be passionate about it. Mm. But you need to be careful to to not confuse the two. You know, your passion for the mission of what you're doing versus your passion for the work that you're doing. What a great distinction. And I think a lot of people, it's kind of like this buzzword that people talk about. And I believe me, I'm all about passion. You know that about me. I'm a super passionate person, uh, very enthusiastic about a lot of things. But to draw that distinction between the difference of being passionate, but actually loving what you're doing, right? And the love of what you're doing could change, you know, the business that you're in now, you told me today at lunch that you really, you're enjoying and loving doing it and you're loving the impact it's making in a a different way than previous jobs that you've had and companies that you've run. Um, I I love that. What, what, as you look back, what's the biggest challenge you've had in your life? Uh, You know, or at least one of the bigger, bigger challenges that you faced and how did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? I feel like I almost don't want to answer that question because, again, I, I mentioned I'm on the board of, of KIPP, right? And these kids in East and South LA have so many, they start off with so many strikes against them and overcome so many challenges. I haven't had anything that compares, right? I mean, it's just, it's not really, it's not even fair, right? Like anything I throw out would be, Yes, the early days of Rango were hard, and like when we thought we were going out of business, that was devastating. But compared to a family that doesn't have enough to eat and trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to work after school and still go to school, and you know whether you can go to college because your parents don't want you to go because they have to, you need to help support the family. I don't know. I'd feel wrong really even throwing something out there. That's a, probably the best answer I've heard. I appreciate that. Role models matter. You talked about advisors. Role models may be a different thing, but curious if you, if you could think of a role model or role models in your life that have had a significant impact on you. Who are they and what did you learn from them? Okay, it's going to sound super corny, but my dad, first and foremost, my dad was a lawyer. Not corny, by the way. A big law firm here in LA, and but also a big family guy. You know, coached soccer teams, would take vacations, was home for dinner all the time, would come to my swim meets when I was at water polo games in high school. So somehow made it all work. And, you know, as I learned later on, part of how he made it work was he was successful and doing well, but he also turned down opportunities to be more successful because it would have compromised some other parts of his life. He had an opportunity to join a very large company here as their general counsel in LA and didn't do it because it would have meant either moving the family and disrupting our lives or him spending a lot of time away from the family. And, you know, I think he was happy with the work he was doing and he was successful and everything else was going well. He didn't have to be the top, top person there if it meant sacrificing in some other parts of his life. And so for me, that's been incredibly inspirational, even as I've been an entrepreneur and worked really hard, like we've talked about. I mean, I've had an incredibly supportive wife and and would never have been able to do it without that, but also have tried really, really hard to carve out the time to be there for my family. And my dad also gave back and set an example on that front as well. And, you know, that was very clear. It was clear that that was important for him. And, you know, I think he passed that down to me. So for me, family is important giving back to the community and figuring out how I can make a difference on that front is important and being successful is important. And, you know, trying to balance the three is really, really hard, but having a great role model for that was incredibly valuable. 
Well, in a moment, we're going to get into the lightning round, but I'm so touched by what you said. I, I do want to explore this just a little bit because it, it's something that, you know, you spoke a bit or quite a lot about the importance of having the support of your spouse and that that you have that and trust and, you know, whether it be a business partnership or your marriage, trust is at the center, you know, focal point for that being able to thrive. And to your point, they're both work, whether that be a business partnership or a marriage, they're never going to be, I shouldn't say never, but I have yet to be exposed. I could speak from personal experience. Sorry, honey, but they, they are work. And I know my wife will agree with that, but, but your insight in recognizing your dad in terms of being able to balance these different components of our life. It's, it's not, you know, it could be made to look easy when you're a kid and you don't know any better, but as you do become an adult, as you do have the responsibilities and you get pulled in different directions, being able to be good at all of them is not necessarily so easy. Curious if you have any advice, suggestions, or maybe if you just want to expand upon the value there and, and how you've been able to build a amazing support and fantastic relationship with your wife that will allow you, her to support you, but also for you to be a great family man at the same time. So I guess there's a book out. I can't remember. I think it may be Covey that wrote it, like the, the, the Speed of Trust. But it just talks about how when you don't have trust, everything slows down, right? Like you have to spend so much more time clarifying you're not assuming best intentions and then you have to understand like where someone's coming from and supposed to just being able to move ahead. And when there's trust and obviously love in a, you know, marriage or whatever, it just makes life so much easier when you assume. And, and this was one of our values at Peringo, as, as you may remember, like you got to assume the best intentions of other people you're working with. And if you don't, it's easy to go there, like this person did this to screw me or this department doesn't know what they're doing. or like. But there's usually a pretty good reason why things happen or why and something didn't get returned. Maybe they didn't get it in the first place, whatever it is. If the first place you go to is this person's out to get me or you know this person is incompetent, you waste a lot of time trying to fix whatever problems you've got as opposed to just looking at like, hey, what happened and how do we move past it? And when you have that trust and assume best intentions, it makes a huge difference. So I can't say I always do that. I certainly try my best, but <laughs> it does make a big difference. And having that in whether it's a relationship, a partnership, whatever it is, I think is really important. Well, it's near impossible to always practice what we preach, but at least if you have, as you said, the right intentions and you intend to act in that way or to be a person worthy of having the trust and, and, also trusting that other person. I think, as you said, right, you know, it's best to live your life where you believe everyone that you're exposed to has, has the best intentions. The flip side also I would add in is you can't take it for granted, right? You have to invest in it. You have to, you know, if you don't show appreciation, whether it's for a relationship, a partnership, whatever it is, that's where they can start to go sideways. Mm -hmm. So as much as you do need to rely on it, you also need to invest in it, and it's and it's important to make sure that, again, you're finding that balance. So true. So I have one more question before we get into the lightning round, and this is really revolving around success habits and rituals. I'm fascinated by how people manage themselves, and when I say that, you know, it's, it's different than managing time because time just exists. So how do we manage ourselves? How do we get the most and optimize our day, our life? Are everything. So what success habits or rituals do you practice that, that you uh, would be able to share? 
Sure. I've been big on mindfulness the past couple of years, and it's kind of funny. I spent two and a half years in Japan. I took Zen Buddhism classes when I was in college. I wanted to be interested in mindfulness. I tried meditating back then, and it just did nothing for me. And then I was on a, a program where we were doing a bunch of meditation, which I was completely skeptical about a couple of years ago, and found it, it just made a huge difference in my mental clarity and kind of how I felt. And, and so I incorporated it into a kind of a daily practice, almost daily practice. I try I love it. I love how it just gives you that reset, helps you focus, helps you recognize kind of emotions and step back from them and figure out, you know, how to deal with stuff in the rest of your life. And so mindfulness is a big one for me. Working out's another one for kind of similar reasons. I just feel we all work hard and being able to clear your mind for a little bit sometimes is really important. And, you know, the endorphins that come with exercise and just feeling better about yourself. And then also I, I love my bowl of ramen like you do. And uh, being able to enjoy that without feeling too guilty about it is also a good thing. So exercise. I also love to read. I'm a lifelong learner. I know, you know, you've heard that from other guests on your show. It's just incredibly important to me to always try and be taking in new information. I mean, there's so much out there and there's so many wheels that I feel like we constantly are trying to reinvent in our lives. And it's pretty amazing when you can find something that uh, that allows you to, to skip or speed that up. And I'm just also, it's also interesting learning about different periods of time, of history, of whatever, different businesses that have been built, whatever it is, or just even enjoying a good book as a release. So I love to read, and then I think it's always important to have something else, non-business, to focus on. This may be too much. I don't no, know. No, uh, this. The, uh, <laughs> well, let me just say what you've shared. It doesn't matter that it's been shared before because it only further illustrates that what successful people do in common matters. And reading and growing, taking care of yourself, exercising, taking care of your mind, and and making sure that you're in the right state of mind and leveraging mindfulness and meditation. These are through lines that I hear over and over again. But I think what you're touching on now, I would love to hear a, l- a little bit more because I think that is something that I think is, is equally as important. Yeah. The last piece I was just going to add is having something outside of work. Think if you're focused on work or even just 100% focused on work and family all the time, there's not a lot of space for you in that. And it's just important whether it's playing the guitar for 15 minutes a day like we were talking about or cooking. Like on weekends, I love to cook breakfast for the family, maybe make dinner for my wife. Just using a different part of my brain, find it very back to the zen, zen in a way, um, but I think it's also a great reset and just allows me to be a lot more present in work when I'm in work because I am resting that muscle a little bit and then can come back to it. Yeah, it's, oh man, that is such valuable advice. I, I really appreciate that because not only do I personally agree and can tell you from my own sort of vulnerable side that I especially now I'm my life's a little too one dimensional focused on the podcast, focused on my business. But then when I'm not focused on that, it's focused on the family and that leaves very little quote unquote me time. I mean, obviously family time I would say is me time because I'm enjoying being with my son and being with my wife, but 
right? Whether it be going on a bike ride or stand up paddle boarding. I don't know why I said that. I don't do that, but that's just an example. Sure. You know, there are ways for you to have a release. And I love that you said, you know, using another part of your brain, because I think it's valuable and will help you in, in terms of giving you the, I would say the space that you need to allow you to operate in a more effective way when you are working, when you are grinding and doing the things to make yourself quote unquote successful. I believe success happens in every part of our life, not just limited to the work that we do. So with that, love to get into the lightning round. The lightning round is a series of quick hitting questions where I put you in an emotional sort of situation. The question should give you at least some sort of immediate answer in which you give that to me. And then we move on to the next question. So the very first question is what excites you? Winning. That's an easy one. Watching my kids thrive. I'm a proud dad, four kids. I mean, just seeing them happy and successful gets me unbelievably excited. Building things, improving things. I love taking a problem, thinking about it and coming out with a great solution that is going to be a step forward, a, you know, a different way of looking at it, whatever it is. That, that kind of problem solving is unbelievably exciting to me when you kind of get that breakthrough moment. I also love making customers happy. I mean, it sounds sappy, but yeah, I was showing you an email at lunch, right? Like when your product or service in your business that you're building delights your customers, that's unbelievably exciting to me. I mean, it's really rewarding and I love it. It goes back to what you said earlier, right? You should love what you're doing. And you showed me that email because you're proud of the fact that your company, Contract Safe, has not only impressed this person, but so much impressed this person to the point where she's going to be able to sleep better at night knowing that her contracts are safe because of your organization. They've been searching for a solution for six months and looked at like 15 different solutions and were just super frustrated, which by the way was where we were when because we were looking for something like that when we were running Varango and we couldn't find it. And so we built it after we left and, you know, having someone find it and feel the same way that, you know, that we feel about it is super rewarding and easing their burden, making them happy, ending their six month odyssey of, you know, 15 different tools and demos and everything else. (laughs) Well, most great companies are born out of the need for a solution uh, for something in someone's life. So it makes sense. What scares you? Oh boy. Other than the current occupant of the White House, which I guess is maybe not okay. I don't know uh, how your your podcast uh, leans here, but um, I mentioned it before. I think, you know, at the highest level, what we're doing to the world, and I, I know people have talked about that on this podcast, you know, what we're leaving for our kids. That definitely scares me. And the fact that we're probably not doing enough to to turn things around, not probably, we're definitely not doing enough. That scares me. Gun violence in America definitely scares me. But probably bigger than that is the collapse of the public education system in the U.S. and and decline in social mobility that comes with that and the decline in, honestly, the American dream, right? I mean, as a proud American as someone who feels grateful to everything that this country has allowed my family to do and allowed me to be where I am today. Like it doesn't feel like people that are starting from scratch here today have the same opportunity. And I mean, it's clear that there are certain populations that it's never really delivered on that opportunity. Again, as I mentioned, a separate issue and that's a separate problem. Well, it's sort of related problem, right? It all comes back to education and making sure people get a fair shake and the opportunity to apply themselves and 
and make a better life for themselves. Wow. It's uh, powerful, man. Thank you for sharing. And I agree. And uh, wow. What surprises you? I'm going to go back to the gun issue. Uh, I'll take this in a political. You're now a political podcast. It's okay. I guess. It's, it's um, not the first time. So it always surprises me after there's a horrible event in our country, the massacring of school children by a crazy person, the lack of movement in stricter gun laws, gun reform, like whatever, reform of laws, whatever it is, and, you know, and how adamantly people oppose any movement on that. It seems so crazy to me. And, and I'm not advocating getting rid of guns in America, you know, wholesale, but making a mandatory background check required and making mentally ill people not eligible for getting guns. I mean, some places have these in place and other places people get around these rules all the time. Like it's just, it's amazing to me that you can have these catastrophic, horrible, galling events happen that don't elicit that reaction from every single American. And if it does elicit that reaction, it seems short-lived. It seems like uh, it comes and goes and it may be by, uh, you know, not the entire population even, right? So yeah, it's, it's shocking. It's true. So if you feel comfortable sharing, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh my God, I'm a total sap. So it, I probably watched a commercial last week that had me in tears, <laughs> uh, much to the amusement of my wife and children. Well, I know uh, you just sent your children off to college. I can imagine a few tears were shed then. I was, I was going to say that that was probably, I mean, in a, in a real way, we have a close family. I love my kids. I'm super happy that they're going off on these amazing adventures right now. I know but... one in Madrid, one in Stanford. You must be so proud. So cool. Look, you're going to cry right now. This is No, no, no. I'm good. <laughs> but but just at one point it really did hit me that, you know, this is a it's not turning a page in a book. It's kind of closing one book and opening another, right? Like once they leave for college, like at least once I left for college, I never really came home. Maybe I came home for a couple of weeks at a time, but that was it maybe a couple of weeks over the summer, but I had jobs in different places and different things. And so it's a, it's the end of an era, beginning of a new one. And I'm excited for that to happen, but it's also very bittersweet and uh, may have shed a tear or two on yeah, connection I, with that. I bet you did. Speaking <laughs> of books, what book have you recommend? You already said you're a lifelong learner and I totally appreciate that. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? Yeah, I think this relates to, you know, you talked about time before. I have found the most useful book for me, probably in my career, was a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. And I had taken a Franklin Covey organization class before that. I'd had other people talk about it. But for whatever reason, that book broke things down in a way that made it very practical. You know, a lot of other systems are tie in mission and vision and all kinds of things that make it a lot harder. This was all about, you got a ton of stuff flying at you and here's a system for managing it really effectively. And for me, I found it incredibly helpful, life-changing even. And it's something I see in a lot of people that I think oftentimes probably could use a little a, a little polish, <laughs> a little uh, improvement. You're I think polite. all of us can can always get better, but time management and keeping track of items and, you know, kind sure. of just staying on top of things is just so important in almost any role, any job, anything you do. And so probably that book is the one I've gifted more than anything else. Well, I'll tell you what, I, if I'm being super vulnerable, I, I love learning, 
My honestly best way to learn for me is to listen to books, but I read Getting Things Done years and years and years ago, actually read it. Maybe I recommended it. You might have. It might even before then. I don't know. It was quite a while ago. Love that book. And I think I'm going to read it again because it truly, I remember distinctly it having a significant impact in my life when I read it. And there's actually an application that I use called Things. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. know that one, but fantastic book. So what a great recommendation. Love it. You talked about the role model, but curious, who's been the most inspirational person in your life and why? Going to go with dad again. I mean, all the same reasons. Got it. Okay. If you could spend an hour with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, there's so many people I would love to meet ranging from... Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, you know, kind of historical religious figures, the Buddha, historical political figures. Um, But again, I'm going to go with kind of the cornier answer here. My, you know, I was kind of a geekier kid, moved back from Paris when I was nine, didn't play any American sports, had this grandfather who was a little larger than life. I was his first grandchild and just always got this unwavering, support and love from him as I was growing up. He died when I was 18. He was a total character, difficult personality in a lot of ways, but I would love to have kind of an adult conversation with him now that I'm growing up and just learn more about him, learn more about his history, understand where he came from and say thank you more than anything. I mean, he made such a huge difference in my life. So cool. Wow. That would be a great conversation. Okay. If you had the chance, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Again, a couple of things, but you know, one, Japan's not going to run the world one day. Uh, <laughs> certainly look like it back then, and that certainly inspired They will my hold the Olympics, time. though. They will, and it's a very cool place, and you're going to enjoy it, but maybe it's not, you know, they're not going to be the overlords forever. Number one, I would probably nudge myself to get into technology a little bit earlier. I really loved all the opportunity. It's funny, I went to Stanford, as you mentioned. It was right in the center of Silicon Valley, but I really didn't get pulled into the vortex of all the startups and technology that was there until much later in my career. And I loved it. And maybe I needed to be ready just like the meditation thing later on, but uh, I would have tried to put a little nudge or a little bug in my ear that, Hey, that's a really exciting area and a lot of fun that would be a great place to maybe go a little sooner. You could also, you know, say, Hey, this is team's going to win the Super Bowl, and you know, so, yeah, but, <laughs> and, and buy some Amazon stock and <laughs> Apple stock and all these other true. things too. Right? That's true. Yeah. So Randy, do you have any regrets in life? And if so, what are they? Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, you don't tend to have too many regrets. You have to be able to sort of put a positive spin on things and, and feel like things happen. And I do really feel like you come away from every experience learning and growing and, and it is a good experience. You know, as we were talking about Varengo, I think it would have been a, a much for the and for for those of your listeners that don't know, you know, we grew Varengo, we then took on additional investors and we were pushed to grow even further, and then eventually Ken and I left, and a couple of years later it filed for bankruptcy, so it was it was not a happy outcome, and I feel like had we been at that crossroads and not chased the gold ring and not tried to go big, just tried to focus growing it as a regional solar company, it would have been a much better outcome for our team, for us, for our investors, for everything else. So that's probably, I mean, if I look at regrets in life, that's probably my biggest one. Yeah. Makes sense. Who are your greatest mentors and why? And what did you learn from them? We mentioned a a couple of them. I mean, again, 
Scott Cook at Intuit, even though he wasn't a direct mentor, would have occasional meetings with him, just the way that he looked at the world and research and being methodical and thoughtful and stepping back and really examining the data and not jumping to conclusions was incredibly valuable. Mm, that's interesting, the not jumping to conclusions part, because a lot of people do, and especially high-level roles. Yeah, and he was always very good at just kind of looking from the outside and saying, you know, what's really going on here? And he was very data-driven and, and very interested in what the data said. And I think, you know, it's very easy to get driven by your gut in a lot of situations. My dad, as we talked about, actually my father-in-law, my stepfather-in-law, who was also a very successful entrepreneur, very much a non-linear, non-in-the-box thinker. And just his approach on things was really refreshing and really valuable. And, and just as a quick example, I had a boss who was very passive aggressive. One of my least favorite qualities, by the way. We didn't really talk about that. But I think many of <laughs> Should your, I ask, ask, what is your biggest pet peeve? That's a, good, that's a good lightning round question, but you just and, answered it. And I think that many of your most powerful mentors or uh, examples are often the negative ones that you, that you see. Because this guy was a great boss in a lot of ways, a great mentor in a lot of ways, but had some things that I also looked at and went, I never want to be like that or do that to someone. But one of the things, he would just duck phone calls when he didn't want to talk to someone. And we were getting a new phone system, and this was early in my career. I was responsible for putting it in, and these were the days of caller ID, and I was super excited about it. I was like, we're going to be able to see who was calling. Like, this was a revelation <laughs> back then. That was like right, a whole new right, thing. Right, right. I'm sure some of your listeners are going to be like, what? Like, <laughs> I can't even imagine that. Yeah, but, um, yeah. So I was telling my father-in-law about it, and he's like, well, why do you need that? I said, well, you can see if someone's calling. If you don't want to talk to them, like, you don't have to pick up the phone, and you, you don't have to talk to them. He's like, why would you not want to talk to someone? I was like, well, like maybe you owe them an answer on something and you're, you don't have it yet. And so you don't want to pick up the phone and have that conversation. He said, just pick up the phone and say, you know what? I know you're looking for an answer. I don't have it for you yet. I'll call you back in a couple days. And it was sort of like I'd had this model of this person running around ducking phone calls, not calling people back, refusing to talk to them, generating so much ill will. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's hard when you're that's your model. Like that's kind of the mindset that you, that's the example that's being set for you. And that's how you're right. doing stuff. And this was just like the, uh, one of your insight moments. Like, yeah, wait, there's a different way you can actually <laughs> just be direct and tell people and not piss them off and annoy them and probably generate some goodwill in the process as opposed to like actually right. destroying the relationship. It's a learned behavior, right? You saw it in action and you thought that was just the only way to do it. And you didn't have the realization that there's another way until you saw another example, which you then of course could apply. That said, now with spammers, it is nice having it, color ID. So yeah. it, like that's totally out of control. I know. It actually, it serves you well most of the time. And earlier this week, I accidentally missed a phone call I was supposed to take because I didn't have her number programmed in my phone. So, uh, but I actually had an appointment that I missed. So, oh, oh, well. What achievement are you most proud of in life? I got to say my kids, first and foremost. I mean, you probably hear that Two all sets the time. of twins. I mean, that's just like, you got to be proud of that. Two sets of twins. Well, two sets of twins. Anyone can have two sets of twins. But then <laughs> actually having four great kids. And I'm sure, right. I think everyone thinks their kids are great. You know, I know mine are great. No, but really, I mean, they're fantastic kids. They're self-driven. They're motivated. They are nice they're kind, they seem happy in the world, they're interested, not you know trying to be just interesting, but actually interested in others in the world. And so that to me, like if you bring kids in the world, I feel like you kind of have an obligation to try and make sure they turn out okay and yeah. 
and I feel like they're on a pretty good track and that's definitely the thing I'm most proud of. But then, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that a few notches down from there. Uh, the culture at Varengo, the, you know, the, the metrics driven focus that we did, my 10 year plus successful business partnership with Ken, my 25 year relationship with Megan that's successful and I think an example for our kids and all that stuff and the strength of my family overall, you know, I see so many people where they're not talking to their family. There's all kinds of drama and both my sisters live here in LA. We get together all the time. My parents are here. We're close. It's, it's, it's something I'm proud of and, and is really important to me. Well, it all goes back to people and it all goes back to the people that are closest in your life. So I love that. You know, we've learned a lot about you, Randy. What may surprise the listener that you haven't yet shared? Yeah, we kind of snuck the two sets of twins in there a couple of times. That usually tends to surprise people a little bit, uh, you know, or as I like to say, flat learning curve, you know, like <laughs> one set of twins decide to swing the bat again and, you know, second set of twins. So, uh, you're consistent. Yeah. Or just, pigheaded and, and don't learn from experience. I, I think you kind of have to be that way if you're an entrepreneur because you would never you know, be a serial <laughs> entrepreneur if you really, uh, you know, kind of took in how hard it was and, and processed all that. Geez, I don't know, maybe that I can speak a couple languages uh, and then don't use any of that in my day-to-day -day life. It's, uh, it's a useless skill at this point, but... Uh, Except for when you travel to Japan. Yeah. Or, or order sushi in a sushi restaurant. Yeah. Because, uh, <laughs> All right. Well, I worked in, I worked in a sushi restaurant for, for a few years. So last question, man. Thank you first and foremost for everything. But what else sort of open-ended, what else would you like to share with the audience as kind of a, a last uh, remark? Well, first of all, I want to thank you. Uh, I think this is an amazing podcast and a really neat topic. And I think so often podcasters try and put so much of themselves into it. And you're from what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced today, you know, doing a great job of, of trying to make this about your guests and not about you. It's amazing how many times that's not really the case out there. So thank you for doing what you're doing because I think it's, it's amazing. Beyond that, I'd probably have a similar message. I always feel like no matter what we do, we do have an obligation to try and leave the, better, the world a better place than you know, where we, where we, when we came into it and what we did. And so... I hope that your listeners do think about, at some level, whatever they're doing in their life, what are they doing to give back? To your point, helping others, making a difference in the world, that's the kind of stuff that, that you care about that you remember at the end of the day. And so, you know, I'd just leave with that message, I guess. Ah, what a great message. Well, I can't thank you enough, not only for being on the show today, but for being a role model and a mentor for me and in my life and just giving me a shot early on in my career, giving me the opportunity and the vehicle to launch into what would be a 10 plus year career in the renewable energy industry. And not only was it amazing from a career perspective, but it was an amazing experience from a, a people perspective. And I owe you and Ken a huge debt of gratitude for providing that opportunity and for giving me the opportunity to, to grow within your organization, which then afforded me the ability to, to move into solar city and into Tesla and, and ultimately to what I'm doing today. So I want to say thank you for that. And then also for being on the show today, I've learned a lot. I hope the listeners have learned a lot. Randy Bishop, thanks for being on inside out. Thanks for having me here, Billy. And just to add on to that, you made it easy. I mean, great people thrive and it's really fun to bring them in and, wind them up and set them loose and see what they can do. <laughs> and, 
and you were a superstar and still are. So thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. 